Grandstand Cricket. With a splendid innings for New Zealand, but they are all out for 372. Another test is done and dusted. Now it's time for some post-match parlay with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Welcome to the Final Word Podcast. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon coming to you from a beautiful Wellington day. Across the ditch for the three one days and the two test matches. Jeff, it's been an interesting start for Australia, but more not as interesting as the place that we're staying at, your sister's place in Wellington. We're staying on top of a cliff, um, which sounds really great, except that you have to climb the cliff to get <laughs> to get to the house. Uh, you have to make a screeching halt off a freeway and then uh, you know get out of 100 kilometre per hour traffic and then climb a cliff. Um, I feel like... You know, it's something out of a some kind of reality TV show or something. But you know, once you get to the top, everything's quite civilized. Beautiful view over Wellington Harbour. Um, you wouldn't know that this place is freezing and, and terrible for most of the year by all the reports from the locals, because it's been glorious sunshine and very welcoming and pleasant. For not, us. The, not, not the sort of reality TV show where Shane Warne gets a platform just to sledge Steve War mercilessly. Thankfully, but that's his entire life, isn't it? Oh, it's just I don't know. What can you say about Shane Warne? I I feel like this was our childhood hero and. I don't know, it's probably t- content for an entire podcast of itself, but that was fairly cringeworthy yesterday. Um, it's been, what is it, 17 years to get over being dropped for a test match? For which, they test won, match. which they won and won the series afterwards. It's true. Um, so it's not like it went horribly wrong, and it's not like Warney wasn't bowling like trash beforehand. It's not like Ryan Lara wasn't scoring off him at will. And it's not like it wasn't 20 years ago, 20 years, maybe just time to let that one go down the river. You know who played well over 100 test matches? You did. You know, like getting pissy about missing out on one, maybe not necessary. You know what? Let's move on to people who are actually relevant in the modern game. The Australian cricket team are playing New Zealand in two test matches. They've already played three one days. But after all of that, this is actually a white ball podcast. Traditionally, Jeff and I have talked about the red ball game, the test cricket. But today we're going to talk about just what's happened in the uh, month of white ball shenanigans, both sides of the ditch. To start with, we had the World T20 squad named yesterday. Now, there was some interesting... Um, additions and omissions from that. Matthew Wade got dropped in favour of Peter Neville. Um, AJ Ty was brought into the side as a fast bowler, which obviously came out of the BBL, not someone who necessarily was expected at the start of the year. Nathan Coulson-Isle got a gong. Ashton Agar got in. Adam Zampa got in ahead of Cameron Boyce. There's a range of things that we're going to talk about in this podcast. But, Jeff, what, what was the one for you that stood out, especially out of all of that? I don't know that anything really stood out in terms of, uh, you know, there was nothing massively controversial. It was actually a really sensible pick and and you know we sat here and had many goes at selectors for decisions that they've made because they haven't done things that we wanted them to do but uh, when this squad came out i just went yep uh-huh uh-huh yeah all right yeah that sounds reasonable um oh yeah good yep good good call nothing nothing there was nothing stupid there was nothing really left field and i know that you know some people have said well they picked guys who haven't been capped before and so on and so forth but it was i don't know there's nothing here that i don't like yeah, it is noteworthy that there are three players who haven't got a cap at T20 international level before. Of course, Peter Neville, Adam Zampa, and, and Ashton Agar. We've all come from left field to an extent relative to where they were at the start of the season. But that's the idea, I guess, of this podcast. We're going to try and sketch through the BBL, the WBBL, the international one days against India, the T20s against India, and of course, the, the Chapel Hadley one days that have just concluded in Hamilton a couple of days ago, and try and 
give a sense of why we've got to where we've got to for the World Cup. So well, that's the interesting thing is that all of those series, all of those matches have fed into this uh, yep. World T20 squad. Maybe they shouldn't have, but things that have happened in 50 over games have contributed to who's been dropped, who's been put in. Um, things that have happened in the Big Bash and in the uh, international T20s, have, it's affected some of the selections and not others. You know, there's a whole hodgepodge of stuff to go through. Yeah, I quite like that. They've all had context. Every game this summer um, from the most meaningless, seemingly meaningless w, uh, BBL game rather through till... Uh, the, the internationals that finished a couple of days ago all led up to this World T20 squad, whether they spoke about it expressly or otherwise. But going all the way back to the BBL, what an incredible success that tournament was. It's the most brilliant addition yet. Over a million people through the gate. I mean, the TV numbers were through the roof. 80,000 people at the MCG, homegrown stars, international stars, emerging talent. Old guys were still bashing around. Everything they did turned to gold this year, Jeff. And I think it's really now got a, a foothold in the Australian cricket market. And I, I can't see it um, ceding that power. Incredible momentum, and we'll also be talking about the WBBL a bit and how mm. that influenced that uh, World T20 squad as well. But um, on the men's side of the draw, you just couldn't have believed five years ago that it was going to be so big that people were, were going to be invested in it, people would care. And there's always been this conversation about, oh, you, you'll never win over cricket traditionalist to T20. And I think this was the summer where um, cricket went, who cares? We don't need them if they're, if they're not going to come with us. Well, we'll convert those who can be converted, and probably you and I could be counted amongst mm. those numbers. But it doesn't matter if, if, if some people who love test cricket continue to love test cricket and not the other form. That's fine. They can do that. They're more than welcome to. We've got uh, we've got a big wide world out there. Walt Whitman said very well, then I contain multitudes. I, I contradict myself uh, in the other order, of course. I butchered that quote completely. But you, you can be multifaceted. You can be different and varied and interesting, and that's what cricket's doing. Yeah, it was traditionally that pejorative sledge of, oh, it's just a footy crowd that go to BBL. You know, it's just a bunch of footy people who go to the cricket in the summer. They don't have the patience or the interest in long-form cricket and go to the shortest form available. <clears throat> I think that's definitely altered. You don't get 80,000 people to the MCG. And as for this idea of them not latching onto people, I mean, a, a, a cursory glance at Twitter when when Chris Lynn's batting and Lynn's sanity taking off, indeed the way Usman Khawaja was embraced in the shortest form of the game and, you know, has developed an, a compelling case for his inclusion, not only in the one-day side, but the World T20 squad, that was unheard of back in November. When Usman Khawaja was brought into the test team, to think we'd be speaking four months later, five months later about, oh, how can he possibly not be in the World T20 squad. That's just not a conversation we could have conceived, but the BBL made that possible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Usman Khawaja playing T20 cricket, it's like Fred Truman playing T20 cricket, <laughs> you know. I mean, he, he's a player from a different era. He's he's uh, runs around in concrete gumboots, you know. He he's crawls between the wickets. He's not very quick in the field. He's not very reliable to take a catch. But, but just as a pure batting phenomenon, suddenly he was unstoppable. I remember we had a blue, maybe on air, maybe off air, that I said he has to be in the World T20 squad. And you said, no, he can't be. He can't field. He's too slow. Yes. But again, it's just the way it evolved. And it meant that his batting was so irresistible that you couldn't conceivably leave him out. Yeah. And by the end of the summer. And, and also, I think it's noteworthy, the international stars, but not just your conventional um, circuit domestic T20 players, not your Chris Scales, dare I say, and, and Kevin Petersons. But I like that England sent Adil Rashid out to Australia to play BBL in favour of taking him to South Africa on the Test Series to prepare him for the World T20. He would have been on the plane uh, as, a, as a reserve bowler for the Test Squad. But like, no, no, you better serve playing in a, in, a one, in, a, in a T20 domestic comp in Australia that didn't exist five years ago. That, again, speaks to the credibility and authority this comp now has. Oh, absolutely. And, and he was one of the most charismatic and alluring performers of that competition playing for Adelaide. You know, They were a massively exciting side to watch because Rashid got the crowd in with the ball. Travis Head got them in with the bat. Um, and he's another one in, in that tier that you're talking about who's a 
would have been a domestic cricket nobody a few years ago. Um, now he's a, a bona fide summer cricket star in his own right. And these traditions that are developing, Will McPherson wrote expansively on the idea that now, where would you be in Adelaide on New Year's Eve if not for the cricket? It's just, you know, so quickly they've been able to penetrate this market. And again, that, that, that derby at the MCG is so noteworthy. It was a fairly lacklustre test summer, which we spoke about at great length, but this seemed the antidote to it. The day before the final test at Sydney, 80,000 people show up at the Melbourne Cricket Ground. I'm agno- I don't care who they are. I mean, they can be traditional cricket people, footy people, everything in between. Um, the fact that that amount of people come out on a, on a, on a, on a, granted it was the perfect storm. It was the middle of summer, middle of school holidays. There, there wasn't a lot going on in the cricket summer at that particular interval after a short test at Melbourne and a short one at Hobart. But still, it speaks to the fact that now people are willing to go, not just watch on TV. And now we have something that's you know huge. And also, like the last thing we'll probably talk about is that it was a great finale, like the crescendo at the G. Less people were there, but you know, Mike Hussey's last game of cricket. Mike Hussey retired from Test cricket three years ago, yet he was the story mm-hmm. on this final night. Over 40 years of age, we've still got these players like Brad Hodge running around, um, yeah, the, 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 David Hussey, his brother as well, who was the opposing captain on that final night. You, you can't ask for much more, and the final delivered with Kawaja and Kevin Peterson, who, you know, the two biggest stars from either side coming out and really delivering it with, with substantial contributions. Basically dueling, um, and, and that run to the title also was what helped uh, Fast Track one of our favourites, Shane Roger Watson, yes. back into World T20 contention. Um, he may even be opening the batting, who knows? So, but that got him, uh, made, it made him assert in the um, T20 international squad to play India in those three games. He smashed that amazing 100 in the last match and he was bowling better and better through the series for the Thunder, through the, through the whole big bash. Suddenly his bowling looked sharp. He bowled brilliantly against India. He was going for five and over while India were making close to 200 in, in each innings. Suddenly he looked good. Suddenly he was on song. For, for all his success in white ball cricket, I think if you asked Shane Watson privately at the start of the summer, do you think you'll be on the plane to India for the World T20? He would have said no. It's taken the BBL to get him back in contention, propel him back into consideration, and now it would have been madness to have left him at home. While we're talking short-form cricket, the WBBL, the inaugural edition of the Women's Big Bash League, again, an outrageous success. Half a million people peaked on TV. They were going to have eight games on um, one HD, so Channel 10's digital affiliate, but they moved three of them to Channel 10, the main station. Ten and, games... and added a couple more. That's right. Um, yeah, added, two so semi having 10 games broadcast overall. And I think that the point you made off air earlier is, is key, that this was a massive risk for Cricket Australia. You know, they, they had to put a lot of money into it. Um, they had to put a lot of credibility on the line to say, we can put a competition together that will actually work. Um, we've got enough players to field eight teams, all the rest of it. And, and it, it could have been a disaster. People could have ignored it. Um, and it was so... Great to see it be be accepted, be embraced, be taken on by TV audiences, by audiences at the ground, um, and to see the, the the standard of game being so excellent, the, the the final being so close, the semi-final thrillers, you know, there was just so much to enjoy. Yeah, there's a lot to pick through here, but the thing that I really enjoyed were the bolters, the players who, with the lack of TV exposure and lack of coverage for the women's game more broadly. Nobody knew who Amanda Wellington was or Maisie Gibson was before the start of this summer. They've both put on clinics of league spin bowling at age 19 on television. Now they are prominently being considered for national squads and, and, and also just well-known in the, in the cricket community. Then you've got players like Lauren Cheadle, Naomi Stallenberg from the Sydney Thunder. I mean, again, they, they've got themselves into the national squad from a long way back on the basis of what they've done in the WBBL. Without that competition... Um, you know, this hopefully in the longer term will create more girls playing cricket, therefore more women playing cricket as they get older, and then we'll end up in a situation where it's far more competitive to get into the state side, the national side, and the standard will rise dramatically, and hopefully that'll help 
validate the case for professionalism going forward. Well, the level of competition, you know, you saw it with Beth Mooney coming into the national squad, yep. um, playing as a specialist batsman in, in the uh, Australian side, but a wicketkeeper. That really seemed to put a sting up Alyssa Healy, who's had some you know, pretty average form over the last few years, hasn't done a lot with the bat at international level, suddenly looked to go up a gear because she realised that she was close to being knocked off for a spot. And in the same way that it was a, a showcase for the men's international stars, it was also the same for the women. I mean, we had uh, Lottie Edwards, we had um, Stephanie Taylor, there was Sophie Devine, there was Sarah Taylor. All of the best international players were pretty much here. Marisanne Cap, the South African opening bowler, and all put on a a fine showing for their various franchises. So we can expect over the years to come, that'll be something that hopefully where I would like to see it personally is it becomes a Saturday and Sunday afternoon staple on television that you know you're going to watch the BBL at night, but you know you're going to watch the WBBL in the afternoon in those middle periods of the summer when there's not test cricket. And hopefully that'll be reflected in more television coverage from Channel 10 as we go forward. And I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. It rated well. They put more games on TV and they've demonstrated a, 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 a willingness to invest in that. So, you know, all credit to the 10 Network and also to Cricket Australia for tipping tonnes of money into this. Well, and, and particularly, I mean, given you've got that sort of architecture with the, with the broadcast stuff set up at the ground, if they can refine their double-header technique to, to tighten the gap between matches, that kind of thing. Um, or as you've suggested, you know, maybe run matches at different grounds but have the TV coverage running one straight into the other, mm. however it might be done. There's certainly, um, well, so much more potential in that than I think we imagined there might be even a few months ago. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand. Right, let's keep bouncing through. Now to the men's game again. We're going to go to the India One Days. So there was five One Days played in the middle of January. The first couple were fairly lacklustre. There were enormous totals chased by Australia. Record-breaking totals and all this hoopla. Yep. But let's be honest, on absolute feather beds. I mean, there were some wonderful hundreds from Rohit Sharma and we enjoyed those for India. And we, of course, we, it was hard not to enjoy that that 200-run stand between Bailey and Smith as they systematically knocked off the, the massive total in Perth to get the first rubber under underway but it was probably the bit the games towards the end of the series after the after it had been decided which were more interesting yeah well this is the thing you look at that series you'll go oh four one to australia india got a consolation win in the last game they got absolutely pumped thing is they didn't they made six centuries in five games india uh Kohli made two darwin made two sharma made two and uh and manish pandey made the match winning one in the last game yeah and if not for the fact that they choked sorry in... not to darwin made one so yeah six in total yeah that's right well i mean they choked in that game in canberra as well they were cruising so it probably should have been three two it was the most amount of runs ever scored in a five game limited over bilateral series which says again a little bit about the tracks that are being prepared for one day cricket I, th- I think it was also a thing that india were kind of ambushed by those those pitches now when australia were chasing about 300 in those first three games india hadn't quite worked it out they thought 300 would be enough they didn't actually go as hard as they could have to get up to 330, 340, which they might have been able to do and, and then may have won those games. So it, it was it was a miscalculation. It was uh, poor tactics by India, but they didn't necessarily know until after a couple of matches just how hard it was going to be to bowl on these pitches. And when they did find their groove in Sydney, they won the final one day by chasing down a big plus 300 score again, Pandy's maiden 100, and it was probably a sign of what was to come in the T20. So um, they had the, they had their tail up after that. They went into Adelaide. Australia never looked a chance. Once again, of course, it was Virat Kohli, who had just a ridiculous trip to Australia. Every time he went out to bat, he just looked utterly dominant. And uh, I said at one point, I wish we could have him out to Australia every year because when he, when he plays here, he seems to find another gear. Uh, and this was no exception to that. Well, he came back from a one-day slump. He hadn't made 100 since the 2015 World Cup. He made uh, the century against Pakistan at the Adelaide Oval. Um, and I'm pretty sure he didn't make another century in the following year, which for him is unheard of. You know, he's a he's a god at one-day cricket. 
came back here, made a couple of hundreds in the one-day series and then just churned into that T20 series, made, I think, 199 runs in three innings for once out, which is by far a record in a bilateral T20 series for, for any player. Um, and and he was unstoppable, but particularly chasing where, where he's in his element. But Pandy, I can't believe Manish Pandey's not in India's yeah. World T20 squad. It was absolutely sensational, 100. They were, they were down and out. It was all on him. He was on debut. And he and he had to charge through and uh, and notch up an unbeaten hundred in the last over to get the win. For Australia's part, that T20 series against India, where they ended up being clean swept, they were done in Melbourne by basically quality spin bowling. And then at Sydney, it was the veteran Yuvraj Singh. It was at one stage Shane Watson bowling to Yuvraj Singh. It was like we were we we're parting like it was 2009. I really enjoyed a bit of a throwback there. What what I of course made an unbeaten hundred, and he was incredible setting India the better part of 200. But they took chased... a couple of wickets and a couple of catches. And yeah. Just, he did everything he could to win that game on his own. And, uh, and As they... Skipper too. He was standing Skipper after Aaron Finch tore his hamstring in Melbourne, which ended up being noteworthy later because, of course, Aaron Finch couldn't play the last game and after top scoring in Adelaide and, and at that stage when he was out, he was the highest scorer in Melbourne as well. Um, there was a lot of conjecture after that as to whether he'd even retain his spot due to the hamstring. And indeed, he's lost the captaincy and we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But Aaron Finch's spot in the side, it was a poorly timed injury. Well, yeah, I mean, you say he top scored and he made that 70-odd. He got dropped about five times in that inning. So I was uh, doing the, the live blogging for that one, I think. And, and you know, he, his catches went down all around the ground. Yeah, he made 40-odd in the game before that. But I don't think he was batting well. He didn't have a great big bash. He made a couple of OK scores there earlier in the tournament. But seemed to taper. I, I think he's lucky to have made the squad at all. I think they just uh, put him in because they felt bad about um, taking the captaincy off him and they couldn't bring themselves to punt him from the squad altogether. Yeah, it looks like he'll end up being the reserve batsman in that Australian eleven, at least on paper in any case. But they ended up using 19 players in the space of three games. They gave yeah. everyone a run. There were players flying to New Zealand oh. early for the for the, for the the tour, to, for the one-day tour upcoming. It was a bit of a shambles. Oh, I thought everybody, it was pretty... Kepler Vessels got a game. <laughs> well, Craig I thought McDermott I... had a trundle. Well, it, it's it's... Like the, it was like the Masters League <laughs> they're playing over in Dubai at the moment. Every old codger who... I waddled up with a walking frame. Oh, Sean, quote, Poe, end quotes, Tate. Uh, you know, the, the potato coming in, <laughs> sending down some spud balls. And uh, batsmen are not afraid of Sean Tate anymore, if you, if you wanted to. If you were, were wondering oh, about that question. I, well, did, I did feel for Tate getting brought back into that national squad and getting treated so badly. It was like he was given one more chance to play for Australia years after the last time, he, and he just couldn't do it on the big stage. It was like seeing, uh, in front of 50,000 people, seeing a person realise they can't do what they used to do. It was like seeing Meatloaf do the AFL Grand Final. <laughs> 2011. The, yeah. the halftime show, where you just went, oh, this guy, this guy should not be allowed. Uh, somebody needs to be feeding him mashed sweet potato or something. It sort of felt to me like it was symbolic of Australia's T20 international life, if you like. The 11 years we've been playing T20 internationals, we've never had any real momentum. They seldom play. There's not a lot of it's always correlation with form lines. Yeah, it seems to be a place where you... Where you, where you, it's a bit of a nursery of sorts, and they've never really quite found their way. I mean, even the squad that's been named this week, it doesn't include players who've done especially well in the BBL, which indicates that they're going to preference players who they, they, they sense uh, are more appropriate to play for Australia. Starts Australia doesn't play T20s. There was a year that David Hussey won the um, T20 mm. Player of the Year at the Allen Border Medal, and I think we played maybe five matches in 12 months. Even that might be generous. It might have been three. Um, oh, they only played two in the last 12 months. They played they played one... Uh, the, one in yeah. England. Well, the Allen Border Medal was one off the back of two T20s this year. Um, and Steve Smith, to be fair, in that in that game made 90 or 50 odd balls and hit the biggest six I've ever seen in real life up into the grandstand at Cardiff. Literally on... the top balcony <laughs> of the hospitality decks, um, yeah, out over Square Leg, square leg at Cardiff. Yeah. 
yeah, so so he, he did plenty to keep his spot in the side. But yeah, it speaks to this idea that maybe T20 internationals haven't quite found their groove in, in the Australian consciousness. Or but we'll see because they've never won this T20 World Cup. And, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll talk about the reasons by that, why that might be the case at the end. But just quickly before we come to the squad in more greater detail, we did have a three-game one-day series here. And Australia lost their first bilateral one-day series since 2013. And it's the first time New Zealand have beat Australia in anything yeah. since 2007. And Australia essentially got flogged in two of the three games. They should have lost all three. The quite comfortably. They, they should have lost all three. I mean, you think about it. They, they'd lost four for 22 in the third one, if not for Mitchell Marsh and John the Hastings. Second, yeah. second one, rather. John Hastings batting up in the James Faulkner role after, yep. Hastings, after um, Faulkner did a hammy in Auckland. You could easily imagine a world where Australia... I, I actually wrote my match report but during the second innings, and I had to rewrite it because I, I just assumed Australia were going to lose. Yep. Well, I mean, you know, in another another day, John Hastings chips a catch up to mid on for four, and 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 you're done. Rather than him making forty odd not out to to guide them home, which yeah. is something he can do, though. Uh, to the enormous credit of Hastings for showing the maturity there, and also Mitchell Marsh, who is yeah. in a, is in a really good spot of form at the moment. Oh, he yeah. made that breakthrough hundred. His first international hundred was in that fifth one day at Sydney, and then he uh, and he came out and made sixty nine not out at Wellington to set that game up for Australia. He's taking wickets with the ball. And he picked up McCullum a couple of times. He was the um, the, the partnership breaker on all three occasions he was used, and I think that he's just now finding his way as the, the principal all-rounder in that Australian side. But that Australian side, it's all about batting collapses. Now, to run through that one-day um, series quickly, the first one, uh, New Zealand made 308, Australia collapsed for 148, was it? Yeah, and they were 6 for 41 at one stage. Just completely got washed away. The second game, they nearly collapsed, um, chasing a... 280-odd. Yeah, and they lost four for 22 that day. Yep. Um, and, and, and sort of got home thanks to their lower order. And then the third game, they were only chasing 246 on a sticky, slowish deck, and they, they couldn't do it. And lost six for 38. Yep, so th- there, there is a correlation in all three games there. But it was also the Brendan McCullum farewell tour. To an extent, the start of the long farewell is last three one-day internationals. So it was nice on, on those grounds to see him get a win. Oh, terrific. Said, I mean, it's not like I was upset to see New Zealand win. They, mm. they, were, they were so appreciative of it. They loved it so much. Brendan McCullum's last innings, just the classic archetypal Brendan McCullum innings, makes 47 off, I think, 29 balls, smashes three sixes, taking his career tally to 200 sixes exactly in one-day international cricket, and then holes out. It's perfect. It's the perfect McCullum innings. I just want to talk about two things. First of all, the unheralded Australian seam bowling lineup. When they were coming into this three-match series, they only had 42 caps between the three who were playing in that game. And they did a wonderful job at pegging back New Zealand on all three occasions. They should be very disappointed in their bats when up the order. Because, I mean, you look at them all. John Hastings went for 39 and 42 in the first two games. Even Scott Boland, who's been missing his Yorkers, he really came good in the third game. We already talked about Mitchell Marsh, James Faulkner in the first game. You know, there, there is pretty much every bowler who was used seam up did well. And then Adam Zampa played in the last two one days and he looks a real talent. He's pretty much bowled himself into the World T20 squad on the basis of two spells where he's willing to throw it up, willing to rip the ball, willing to bowl aggressive leg spin. Not always easy to do with the white ball. He also showed, though, in the Big Bash League that he can run a guy out with his face. True, true. Now, that might be why I got the Guernsey. That is and it was un- Peter Neville, he ran out too. Yeah, that's an, that is an underrated skill, the, uh, the facial run out. <laughs> I mean, when's the last time that Cameron Boyce ran someone out with his face? Never. Never in his career. Never done it. Lift your game, Boise. Maybe you wouldn't have got dropped. Boise's you know? teammate, Usman Khawaja, came into the one-day side belatedly. Yes. The first time, I mean, we I, that was one of the more I've rarely seen such anguish over an, an Australian non-selection. But it was like, only a one-day. I mean, it, it, it was a relatively yep. nondescript picture. Okay. You know, yep. these, these, first these, of a series overseas. Absolutely. Like, people aren't paying huge... But this there was, was a back meltdown. page news. There was a brain <laughs> meltdown. There was rage. There were, like, torrents of rage. It was like... 
in Mount Doom, you know, third Lord of the Rings movie, like hovering over the sea of lava. It wasn't lava, it was just anger. It was just, where is he? Stop leaving him out. And when they're having that batting collapse at Eden Park, there's this glorious irony. Who's wearing a fluoro orange vest, running drinks out to the middle? Osman Khawaja. And they brought him in and he made 50 in that first uh, the first game he played at Wellington and batted superbly. He, he got himself out ultimately, but he... He, he got bored. Yeah, he was he, just hitting them too well. He just looks so good. And likewise, the 44, it wasn't as good at, at, at Hamilton. He looks semi-mortal at something. He played yep. missed a couple of times. I don't think I've seen Usman Khawaja play a miss this summer. Um, and he eventually nicked off there as well. So, I mean, you know, he, he, he is human. But, um, but, it, but it was the biggest outrage I've seen in a long time. And that takes us all the way through with Australia losing that three-game series. Of course, we have a test series coming up. But as far as the white ball is concerned, the World T20. This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. ABC Grandstand. Jeff, Cameron Boyce played every T20 international Australia's played for three years, has an economy rate of six and a half, an average of 20-odd, didn't do much wrong against India. Had he had a decent keeper behind the stumps in that third T20 rather than Cameron Bancroft, he might come good eventually, but missed a crucial stumping off Suresh Rayner, who ended up winning the game. That's a big call leaving him out. Well, particularly given that last little tidbit you've thrown out, essentially Australia would have won the match and Boyce would have been the match winner. Mm. But, like I said, what has he done with his face lately? You know, that's that's obviously what they're going on. It, it, it's it's such fine divisions in international cricket. The, the only thing he's done wrong was that that horrible T20 adventure to England where they flew him all the way across the world <laughs> to bowl one over in Cardiff that went through, what, 24 runs? 17, but Moe and Ali just hitting yeah. him wherever he chose. Right, and, and then he got dragged from the attack and didn't bowl again. <laughs> so he flew across the world to bowl one over. It was the most expensive over in cricket history in terms of money um, rather than in terms of runs. I, I reckon, I reckon that's why he's done wrong. I reckon symbolically there's something to that. I reckon people remember that <clears throat> over because there's so much written about it. It looks so, not, so ridiculous slowing him over for one game and getting yeah. getting only one over. It. I reckon there might be something to that. that at some level, people just don't think he's up to it, which is just not fair relative to the stats. He hasn't had the chance to prove whether he's up to it or not. But uh, perhaps it was more that, uh, I mean, do they think Zampa's a more containing kind of player? He, you know, he does use the flatter trajectory, mm. um, but but he mixes it up as well. He does flight the ball as well. Yeah, he does. And he's also considered a fighter. He He's a good lower order hitter. He's done well in the recent T20 series. And he, and he, and he of course, was, was excellent against New Zealand. So it might be a case of just going with the guy who's currently in the 11. In, in either event, it's, it's... it's Maybe it doesn't matter. I just feel, okay, Australia's going to go over there, play New Zealand, play a qualifier, play India and play Pakistan. I don't think it matters what we do. India and Pakistan are going to devour any Australian <laughs> leg spinner who goes, it doesn't matter who it is. You could send Cameron White again, like for all the difference that it would make. There is going to be no difference. They, whoever it is will be ploughed into the stands again and again and again by both those sets of batsmen. The spare... Spinner is Ashton Agar. Rod Marsh said he was the 15th man chosen. Who doesn't bowl in the big bash? But, and he also said, but the other good thing, I mean, you can you can list this to the you know the, the long line of Rod Marsh classics. He cited 2013 as the reason he's got picked for a squad in 2016. Um, look, you well, know, Sean Marsh got picked on a South African Test tour because he made a good 40 there four years earlier. Yeah. You know, so this is that was an inverarity one, I think. I, I think the, the the Agar decision is justifiable on 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 the on the grounds that he will one day be probably Australia's principal spinner. One day Nathan Lyon won't be Nathan Lyon anymore, and they want Agar to be that guy and taking him on tours like they did with England last year. It develops his his maturity yeah, as an international bowler. He batted really well in the Big Bash, admittedly. So, you know, he's a great lower order bat option. He came in and, and blasted a few beginnings there and, and more power to him. And But he, he wasn't bowling. Perth Scorchers were not using him as a bowler. And then his teammate, 
AJ Ty. I like that. AJ Ty. I really like how it flows off the tongue. He's got the last fast bowling spot. He didn't mm-hmm. go so well against Although India. He's never in the... bowled fast in his life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a slower ball. Yeah, that's right. He's got six different versions of the slow ball. He, he got picked on the basis of what he did in the Big Bash, but didn't go so well against India. But you feel like. Everyone is... got tapped that night, though, yeah. except for Watto, who went True. five and over. I just keep coming back to this. I'm just saying. Just we rest saying. our case. You know? Just saying. Shane Watson for Australia. AJ Ty, 13 and over, and uh, conceded the losing runs in the final over. Guess who didn't do that? Shane Watson. Well, well, the second last over went for five runs. That's I, all I'm saying. I think with Ty, they're just evaluating that in India, they'll need guys who can do tons of tricks. So John Hastings, likewise. Hastings was probably <clears throat> not in the frame for this either. He didn't get picked Absolutely for that. Not. He didn't get picked for the 50 over squad against India until Josh Hazelwood went on a went on a break after bowling tons of overs through the summer. So he was a bladed call-up, and he's been Australia's best white ball bowler this summer. John Hastings is the Stephen Bradbury of Australian fast bowling. Like, Hastings is just... He has come from nowhere. He happened to be in England, pottering around, playing for Durham, was it? Yeah, um, it was. Yeah. During, he did well in the 50-over comp yeah, for Durham for sure, last year. Yeah, sure, but, he, but he, he just happened to be there. As we said at the time, he wouldn't have been in the top 15 fast bowlers in Australia at that point if you'd listed them, you know, who was going to come in next. He happened to be there. They didn't, you know, they didn't want to spend money a la Boyce to bring someone over for a game or two. So they went, all right, hey, so you're in. Bowled beautifully, stayed stayed sort of roughly in contention, had a really good big bash. He was the subject of Kevin Peterson's thing where he said, that's the best death bowling I've ever seen. That was about Scott Boland and John Hastings, the last four overs in a, in a Melbourne Stars game. And so that kind of kept him in contention. And as you say, Hazelwood took a break. All right, we need someone else. Hastings in for a couple of one-dayers, does well, uh, gets in the one-dayers for the New Zealand series, did brilliantly, one for 39, one for 40. And those were in games where he got smashed early mm. by McCullum, who hit him for several fours, a couple of sixes. And from there, Hastings would just screw it back and screw it down and, and, and make sure that nobody else could score off him. So I think on the back of that, he's got himself into the World T20 squad. And he's a guy who can bash sixes from number eight as well. Yeah, he's got a real resilience about him in a way that Matthew Wade hasn't shown of late. Matthew Wade's batting has fallen away terribly in international cricket at the white ball level, both the 50 overs and 20 over cricket. And he's lost his spot to Peter Neville. I think the he was probably already gone before this, but his dismissal in Hamilton kind of summed it up. Sm- you know, smashing a half track at a the only fielder inside the circle on the leg side. And it just summed up Wade's summer for me. I think he would have probably been gone anyway, but Mm. um, they've decided to pick Neville on the basis that the best wicketkeeper must go to protect the spinners, particularly, you know, younger spinner like Zampa. Stumpings in India could be crucial and decide who wins those T20 internationals. And I think that's a good call. It's one of those things, it's like what we're talking about with Kawaja, where you go, okay, you've got a guy who's kind of crap at some of the things, but his batting is so much better than that that it outweighs his deficiencies in the field. That was always the case for Matthew Wade's selection, is that he was a really, really good batsman, and his wicket-keeping was garbage at times, but it was good enough, and it would get them by, and they'd trade a few mistakes for the runs. When he stops making runs, well, that's it. You can't be that sort of player and, and be chipping in 20 or 30. You've got to be making 80s, 100s. You know, you've got to be a proper batsman, and he's not. He hasn't batted like one probably since that collarbone injury late last year. Yeah, I, I take a similar view to Glenn Maxwell at the moment. He struggled terribly in New Zealand, a couple of ducks, and didn't look like it at all. But he's the match winner. He's someone who we know and we've seen against India at the MCG in the 50-over game this year where he, where he made a... Uh, we ended up with 94, but it was the way he made the runs. It was completely dominant. And he's done it so many times for Australia that you know that he's worth still taking to India. But Wade hasn't got that bank of match-winning performances. It just isn't there. So it was hard to validate his continued inclusion in the sides. That's probably the main point of controversy. In the women's T20 squad, it's pretty much as we expected. Elise Villani's been brought back in after missing out on the India series. They lost the India T20 series 3-0, and it wasn't an impressive performance. They 
um, were were, um, were 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 in strife throughout. Actually, they lost two one, didn't two they? One, yeah. I was going to three nil. I'm, I'm comparing it to the men's. They won the last game with Elise Perry going nuts yes. in the last game, but That's right. they lost yeah, the two, first two. Two, two one a loss in the T20s and a two one win in the 50 over game. So you know, India women's team traditionally not a strong batting team came to Australia and performed incredibly well. You know, won the the first two T20s and and won a 50 over match. So they'll be delighted with that too. But there's always been a sameness to Australian women's teams over the last five years. So they've been very consistently basically the same names. There's been the occasional transition with the retirement, but you know, you could look at a lot of the names on this uh, in this squad would have would have been there three, four, five years ago. Yeah, to that end, I'm I'm buoyed by uh, Lauren Cheadle's inclusion, the 17 year old left arm quick. She bowls just like Mitchell Stark. For those who haven't seen her bowl before, very whippy action, nice and tall, and 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 has plenty of pluck as well. She's very interesting uh, sort of person to talk to in an interview because she's uh, got plenty to say. She's interesting, and I I think she'll be a the sort of player who we we track with great interest over the next couple of years. Naomi Stallenberg was left out, wasn't given, given a chance really after being brought into the squad. Yeah, that was a, I think it was, it was a weird selection in the first place. She basically got picked for the squad on the back of three good innings in the WBBL where she came in and made about 40 off 20 balls on three occasions. You know, she can smash it, but she also had a run of form where she, I think she went duck six, duck six, six, duck or something like that. You know, she made a lot of low scores and then made these, these few whirlwind innings and they went, all right, we'll give her a punt, um, just give her an give her a go in the national side. But then they pushed her down to number eight, I think. Didn't let her bat because, you know, the, she wasn't required in that first innings. And then she was dropped for the second game without yes. having faced a ball. And then she's been left out of the squad. It's so, tough yards. But it's like one way or the other, you know, what if you're going to have a hunch and put a player in, you need to let them play. And if they haven't played, you can't really turf them out again. I, I don't understand it myself. But, yeah, uh, Beth Mooney and Lauren Cheadle are, are sort of the only two inclusions who've come in off the back of WBBL form. Um, and results, whereas the rest of the squad is, you know, I, we could have picked it a year ago and it would have been the same squad. Yeah, Mooney looked good for Australia in a in a uh, 2020 debut and the, the game after that in Melbourne. So she'll be looking in the longer term to replace Alyssa Healy as the as the uh, as behind the stumps, but for the time being, she'll have to settle as being a specialist batsman. And I think she's uh, the sort who, at 21 years of age, has got a long career ahead of her. Now. Before we go, Jeff, let's just quickly talk about the Test series. Look, we've got two Tests: one at Wellington at the Basin Reserve, followed by Christchurch. <coughs> The men are going to be up against Brendan McCullum in his 100th test and his final test. It'll be no easy Milestone task. City. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be no easy task. I think no. this will be one of the toughest away trips Australia had for a long time. Well, there's already plenty of spice in the series after that. Uh, the bad-tempered final one-day game, the controversial mm. Mitchell Marsh dismissal that got all the Australians grumpy because I don't know why he was out. Um, carry on. But, uh, you know, that, that got them tense. You know, is that ill feeling going to linger or, or, or will the kind of overwhelming respect for a, a great player be the thing that seeps through? But I, I hope it's going to be a test. Brendan McCallum basically all but conceded that the um, test pitches are going to be bowling greens. No, yeah, they're, they're... That, that's my one hope. I hope they deliver on that. I hope they deliver green tops and play to their comparative advantage. You know, Bolton Southie obviously have performed so well. They've yep. got a, a, a brace of other... Um, uh, seem as to compliment them. So I, I would like to see Australia challenged on yes. green tracks like they were in England last year. And if they are, and if that is the case and they're not flat tracks, this could be a very interesting series. Yeah, I, I want to see, if Australia win, I want to see them really earn that win. I want to see them deserve that win. Um, and, you know, if, if they can't sort of overcome those conditions to deserve it, then I'd like to see New Zealand win and send out Brendan McCullum appropriately. Yeah, and Steve Smith said repeatedly that his main job as captain is to see Australia win abroad more often. Like it's been a, that was probably the one thing in the Michael Clark 
CV, if you like, which mm. wasn't coloured in. It was not winning enough away from home. So it was probably why he was so dark about losing that one-day series over here. You know, it, it meant a lot more, really, than, mm. than, than possibly losing one at home would have meant. This is The Final Word with ABC Grandstand. Jeff, we've covered so much terrain. We've done the BBL, WBBL, 50-over games, World Cup squads, test matches. You... If it's happened, we've done it. Don't forget T20 internationals. Uh, oh, a very underrated them. film. Everybody loves T20 internationals. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be at the test match at the Basin Reserve this week for the ABC Grandstand. And, of course, we'll be back with the Final Word podcast next week. Until then, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.